Okay. So we will be getting into session two on the Trinity, and you'll notice the Trinity is broken up into two parts. Uh, in the first section, we will try to cover accurate teaching about the Trinity. How do we know about the Trinity? And then I'll take the second session to deal with false teachings about the Trinity and how to engage with them. Um, but admittedly, you're going to feel like this is a, a drinking from a fire hose kind of experience. So I should just get into it. Okay. Um, let me give you a quote that I think is very helpful for understanding how we know about the Trinity. It's related to God has to reveal the Trinity to us. God is self-sufficient. He reveals to us who he is. And this is true of the Trinity. One author uh, reflecting on this, Scott Swain, says it this way. He says, scriptural Trinitarianism retrains its status as the primary way we know Trinitarian discourse. Not just the sense that the Bible's Trinitarian discourse is the source and norm of Trinitarian doctrine, but also in the sense that the Bible's Trinitarian discourse is Trinitarian theology's normative pattern and its generative standard. By the way, what that means is just it, it sets the, the pace and what kind of language we use when we talk about the Trinity. For someone to be fluent and well-informed in Trinitarian praise, you need to reflect the Bible's grammar, its definitions, and its vocabulary. Everything else, everything else when we're talking about the Trinity, is just commentary. If this is so, then the primary task of Trinitarian theology is to gain fluency in the Bible's primary Trinitarian discourse. So what that means is, what you're looking at on your printout there is the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Nicaea is true teaching about the Trinity. Okay? Can we say that first? And it's only commentary on the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, the Council of Nicaea is commentary on what Scripture is actually revealing to us about the Trinity. It's a summary. Now, that doesn't mean that I think someone can accurately contradict Nicaea and walk away with a good Trinitarian theology. But Nicaea itself is simply commentary on the biblical text and what it reveals to us. Okay? What that means is, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to press in and ask questions like, how do we know that about the Trinity? And for scriptural answers, we shouldn't just trust the tradition of the church. We should also know, where does that tradition come from? How does that tradition reason itself out in the biblical text? So the, the Nicene text is carefully formatted to reflect accurately and engage with false teachings about the Trinity. So I'm just going to go over what the Nicene text says. Uh, not reading all of it, you have it there for you, but highlighting the pieces that are carefully uh, laid out. And then when we get into session two, you're going to see why those pieces needed to be carefully laid out that way. But before I get into Nicaea, uh, I always like to ask catechism questions uh, when it comes to these things. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in this case, I think is good here. Uh, it asks the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the youth who would have answered this question would have said it this way. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God of the same substance, equal in power and glory. This is a summary of what the Bible teaches about the Godhead. And as its source text, as its proof text, it cites Matthew 28, 19, which we read every Sunday in church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command then of the Great Commission is not to just go make disciples who believe in a God, but, believe in, but go make disciples who believe in the God, the one true God, the triune God. The Great Commission then is a Trinitarian text. We often don't think about it in those terms, but it reveals the Trinity to us. It says there's only one baptism, 
And it's the Trinitarian baptism, the one of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is a foundational doctrine in Christianity. It is important. And if you go wrong on the Trinity, you go wrong on basically everything else. So here's what Nicaea says about the Trinity. And you have it there in front of you as well. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Now that's what we would call monotheism, right? It tells us that there's one God and he is the Father. And, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, that's before creation. And notice this, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So this is Jesus and how we know him. We know him as the son of the father. And remember, Nicaea has just said, we believe in one God. And now it's going to define that one God as both father and Lord, who is even with the father, equal in substance, nature, and attributes with the father. And then finally, if you'll skip that uh, third paragraph and go to the fourth one. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, also the Lord, and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who is spoken of by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So this is core scriptural belief. This is what Christians believe. This is what all Orthodox Christians affirm. And so what we would say is the Trinity matches up with a monotheistic belief about God. One of the most common assertions about Christians, uh, if, you're, if you're dealing with uh, someone who is a Muslim or someone who is uh, a Jew or someone who uh, believes differently from, from Trinitarian Christians, they would, the first level of accusation is, well, Trinitarian Christians believe in not one God, but multiple gods. They are tritheists. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christians believe and affirm. One easy way that I can show you this is just by the two texts that I want to look at uh, to affirm this monotheistic belief or affirmation in the church. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, if you want to turn there. Um, it is one of the core texts, as uh, Dr. Currid said as he closed our Pentateuch lectures uh, just two weeks ago. He said, this is the essence of the Torah, this text. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we find uh, what is commonly known as the Shema. And it is known that for the first word, which says hear. And here's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe in one God, a monotheistic God. And we believe in that one God, and yet we believe that one God is a triune God. Now, how is that not a contradiction? You might be thinking about that and saying, that sounds contradictory. You can't believe in one God and multiple gods. Now, this is where many go astray. Christians believe in one God, one Lord, and he manifests himself to us by his divine and special revelation as being made up of three distinct persons in the Godhead. And to know this, we, we can't think about God and get to that conclusion we can't know that by empirical evidence or study. We can only know that through his special revelation about himself. And so that, that is in seed form all over the Old Testament. It's not contradicted anywhere. But the most clear statement on this, at least as it relates to the Son, is actually in John chapter 1, verse 1, 
uh, where we are told about the logos. And so if you'll turn there with me as well, uh, these are what we would say are the core texts to build up the Trinitarian nature of God. So remember the setting of the early church. Uh, the people who are coming to faith in Pentecost, the people who are the disciples of Jesus, the people who are the followers, they're all Jewish men. They're all Jewish men and women. They're, they're Jewish believers who are monotheists. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they're monotheists who come to worship Jesus. Now, that needs to be underscored because I think something we tend to neglect is the fact that the early church grows by Jewish belief, by Jewish conversion, and it, it, something a Jew is not going to do is believe in a tritheistic or polytheistic God. So the early church growing by means of Jewish converts is a core thing that we can say, oh, that shows us that this is not a contradiction in Jewish belief. But you don't just have to take my word for it. John the Apostle writes uh, in no less terms by saying John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. Now you're hearing in that language that we just read last session in the aseity of God. He is self-sufficient. He is the one before all time, before the mountains were formed or ever the world was formed. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And here John says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. So John is talking about the word and talking about God and saying these two are the same. Now, they're not the same in that they're the exact same person. They're the same in that they have the same divine essence. They are of the same substance with one another. So Trinitarian theology affirms not a contradictory belief, but a mysterious belief. A contradictory belief would be for us to say God is one person and three persons, right? That doesn't make sense because you're, you're saying two contradictory statements, okay? Trinitarian theology does not say that. We say God is one in substance, three in person. Or God is one in essence, his nature is one, and yet he is three in his persons. Trinitarian theology then uh, does not contradict itself, but it rather tells us a mysterious revelation of God, that he is both three and one, but not in contradictory terms, in, in different terms. So we would say it this way, the Father, Son, and Spirit are both the essence of the one God, each of them individually is God, and all of them together are the one God. They are the one God spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that there is one God who the Israelites serve and worship, and he is Father, Son, and Spirit. So we know this because God tells it to us, not because we can get there by our own will and reason. So it's not just John chapter 1. Uh, there's a, kind of a New Testament building of this idea. Many, it's popular for many people to claim today, Jesus never ever said he was God. He never made the assertion he was God. This is a common uh, critique that Christians face. So I just want to give you uh, two points for the deity of Christ. How do we know that Christ is indeed divine? And I just want to look at two texts that kind of speak to this, or sorry, not two texts, two, uh, let's say, modes of reasoning that Christ is divine. The first one is the reason that he died. We could go to his crucifixion. His crucifixion tells us that he was divine. Uh, two texts to support this. The first one is also in John's Gospel, chapter 5, so just a couple pages from where we were. Chapter 5, verse 18 of John's Gospel. Jesus has just had a, a scuff with the Pharisees. And here John comments to us 
these terms, John chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The reason the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus is why? Because Jesus is claiming to be God. Okay? It's clear that we have to understand that because nowhere does Jesus ever say, hey, by the way, disciples, I am God. He doesn't say that, but he is not, he's not going to say it in those words. That's kind of a weird standard to put on him. He's saying it all over the place if you know how to listen for a first century text. He says here, uh, or accurately here, the Pharisees want to kill him because of his assertion that he is one with the Father. And even in Matthew's gospel at the conclusion, this is in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is explicitly crucified for the claim that he is God. It's Matthew chapter 26, uh, beginning in verse 62. It's a long, long chapter. But Jesus is before Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the head of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's the, the head of the council. So these are Jewish scholars, Jewish leaders, Jewish rulers. These are people who know their Bible up and down. They know their Old Testament. And so when Jesus says things and they take it in a certain way, it's not because they misunderstand Jesus. It's because they accurately understand Jesus. Okay? They know the Bible better than you and I do, their Old Testament. And here is what Caiaphas interacts with Jesus saying. Verse 62, I'll start there. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and listened to what he says. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answer to him, he deserves death. Jesus is crucified. He's killed because he claims to be divine. Evidence one for the divinity of Jesus, he died because of it. Okay? Evidence two for the divinity of Jesus in the New Testament uh, is found in what we would say is the doctrine of worship. Okay? So in scripture, only God can be worshipped. Okay? When Jesus is tempted by Luke, uh, or when Jesus is tempted by Satan in Luke's gospel in the wilderness, also in Matthew's gospel. Uh, one of the first temptations that Satan says is, bow down and worship me. And Jesus says to him at that time, you shall worship the Lord God and him only shall you serve. Okay? God is the only one fitting for worship. In Revelation, in John's revelation, John encounters an angel kind of at the culmination of the revelation. John wants to bow before the angel and worship him. Revelation 19. And the angel stands him up and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's what the angel says. But in Revelation chapter 4, when there's a vision of Jesus on the throne, we've already read this text, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. They, they look at Jesus, the living creatures look at Jesus, they see him seated on the throne, and what do they do? They worship him. They fall before him and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. So the fact that Jesus is worshipped, and that he doesn't reject that worship, he accepts that worship. And the fact that he himself affirms that only God is to be worshipped, what is that saying? He's saying that he is God. The New Testament is saying Jesus is divine. So this is what we would say is Trinitarian language, Trinitarian theology coming out. Jesus is making a claim to be divine, and yet he's, he's saying this is not three gods or multiple gods, this is the one true God, who is both Father and Son, and also Spirit. 
And for this, uh, I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 5 in your Bibles. It's an interesting text because it's often uh, read not in light of Trinitarian theology, but it does, I think, attest to that fact. And this is the, the scene where uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they go and they sell their field and they lie about how much they sold it for so they can get more credit for uh, how much money they're giving to the church. And in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the, the, the words from the apostle are rather interesting. Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And the very next verse, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it this, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias, Ananias lies to who? To the Holy Spirit, verse 3. And Peter is his assessment of that, verse 4, you've lied to God. So the New Testament not only speaks of Jesus as God, but also as of the Holy Spirit as God. And also, uh, John chapter 16, there's this long kind of discourse between Jesus and the apostles. And in that discourse, Jesus essentially says to them, my spirit will lead you into all truth. Why? Because he will speak and declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is uniquely able to reveal the Son and the Father to the apostles and mediate that truth to them. Why? Because he's heard those things from eternity past. He knows them intimately. That's John 16. Again, I'm just doing a survey of these texts. There's more that we could go into and time is going to fail us. But uh, So the, the Holy Spirit is divine. Jesus is divine. The New Testament affirms both of these things. And the New Testament roots itself in the Old Testament, in which Deuteronomy tells us that God is one. So the New Testament is building this idea of a Trinitarian theology. As the Nicene Creed says, there's one God, the Father, and there's Jesus Christ, who's also Lord and God, and there's also Spirit, who is Lord and God. And these are not contradictions. They are a mysterious revelation about who God is and what he is like. Now, one last thing I want to touch on, it's called the economic trinity. You might be saying, well, if God is one, in what sense is he three? Three persons, and, and how does this relate to us in creation? The trinity is one uh, and three, and that is as the trinity relates to itself. We would call these the internal relations of the trinity, okay? But as the trinity relates to the world, we can speak about the Father doing something, and the Son doing something, and the Spirit doing something. And we're not saying that God isn't doing that thing, only the Spirit is doing it. What we're saying is the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who carries that thing out, but the Godhead, the one divine will, wills that to be. This is called the economic Trinity. What it means is as, as God relates to the world, he mediates himself in the persons of the Trinity to his creation. So for instance, Jesus is the person of the Trinity who is incarnate, who dies in our place, and who is our mediator between God and man. That doesn't mean that Jesus stands at will, odds with the Father, mediating for us. Okay? The Spirit is the one who regenerates us unto salvation and causes us to see God's grace. That doesn't mean that he does that because God the Father didn't want to or the Son didn't want to. It means he is the person of the Trinity who carries out that aspect of the will of God. God is one in his will. He wills into the world human salvation, and he mediates that salvation through the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. This is called the economic trinity. It tells us about how God works in the world through the various persons of the trinity. 
And scripture speaks of certain persons of the Trinity doing certain activities. But we have to remember, because of the unity of the divine God, we cannot say, well, Jesus does that, and that's to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit participating in that. The one God is always willing the acts of Jesus, the acts of the Father, and the acts of the Spirit into the world. Okay? I know that's a complex idea, but we kind of have to pin that, and I get it. We're kind of going quickly through this. But I'll pause there. That's all the orthodox teaching I want to cover on the Trinity, and then we will get into false teachings after this.